I stand before you to officially launch my campaign for a second term as President of the United States. All those you've been knocked down, counted out, left behind, this is your campaign. Welcome to the Swing 2020. In the most uncertain year in modern history, the only predictable thing about American politics is the unpredictable. This election is no horse race. Crisis management is on the ballot. It's the incumbent Donald Trump and Vice President Joe Biden vying for the White House. But this isn't just a vote for Commander-in-Chief. It's state houses, rural congressional districts, powerful governor's mansions, and bellwether Senate seats. It's prosecutors, sheriffs, and superintendents. And the results will reveal the pulse of the American people. The swing, searching for the heartbeat of a nation, is counting us down to November 3rd. Here are your hosts, Chris Baccia and Emmanuel Barbari. 80 days still to go until Election Day, November 3rd, 2020, and we have a major update in the race as we anticipated. There is a vice presidential nominee on the Democratic side of the ticket. That is Senator Kamala Harris. Vice President Joe Biden selected her earlier this week. That was Tuesday, and now as we meet 80 days away until the election, we have two candidates on either side. Four candidates to observe and and look at in the presidential sweepstakes. And Emmanuel, a fuller picture of the 2020 race. Kamala Harris drawing early praise from, I would say, most corners of the media market. And if you look at the data, voters seem to approve as well. So far, it's a quick boost for the vice president. We'll see how long it lasts. But Emmanuel, at least at this point, we can fully evaluate what we're looking at in 2020 without speculation about that key vice presidential pick for the vice president himself. And Chris, it was a long process, a lot of anticipation, and the rising star within the party for quite some time ends up getting the nod. You mentioned the data, early good indications for the Democratic ticket, political poll, this among all registered voters, Democrats, Republicans, 52% approve, 30% disapprove. The polling has not wavered in terms of the overall race for Joe Biden with this election of Kamala Harris. So we kind of anticipated this. Any other pick would have been a little bit of a, ooh, uh, well, he went in that direction. Right. Kamala Harris was the safe pick. We'll discuss some pros, some drawbacks as well. But now you have that fuller race, and now it's full steam ahead to election day. So Kamala Harris, to give uh, the listeners a, an idea of her background. She built her career as a prosecutor, district attorney in San Francisco. So she's a Bay Area politician, um, which of course has has given rise to many successful politicians in, in Democratic politics, at least. Uh, the Speaker Nancy Pelosi comes from the same area. Gavin Newsom, the governor, comes from the same area. But she exited California politics pretty quickly. She was the attorney general which is a big job in California. And then she ran for the United States Senate alongside Dianne Feinstein. And she only served two years there before she said, I'm running for president. And that draws parallels with a Barack Obama who did the same um, from Illinois and said, I'm going to run for president after two years. I have uh, this oratory gift, which 
which Senator Harris um, certainly shares with the, the 44th president. But, you know, Harris, she draws some she draws some criticism from the left in that way, um, in, in that she has a prosecutorial background. And I think, Emmanuel, this this is sort of an interesting part of her candidacy is that she's not um, the olive branch to the left wing of the party that maybe some members of the Democratic Party were hoping for. And you, you had Bernie Sanders, who's commanded so much support, so much um, enthusiasm in the last two cycles. And in both cases, both in 2020 and 2016, that leg of the party has basically been rejected when it came to the vice presidential sweepstakes. And I think this is a very interesting point that Joe Biden's doubling down on moderate politics in the 2020 election. 100 percent. The left of the party has been completely ignored with this pick. It doesn't mean they're not coming out to the polls, but they're definitely not going to be fired up over Kamala Harris. They went towards the center of the party and there's going to be some some juggling debate over what Kamala Harris truly believes in because she says some things to appease certain people and then comes back towards the middle to appease others. So that's going to be a debate in itself. But if those people in that sector of the party weren't going to understand the importance of the election and come out to vote anyway. I think the mindset of Joe Biden's campaign is they probably weren't going to vote for Joe Biden in the first place. So it's more of a long view. It's more of a let's secure the moderates. Let's secure the independents. Questions about that as well. And the electoral appeal of uh, Kamala Harris, who is from the Bay Area, as you mentioned, doesn't really connect as much with Midwest voters didn't really turn out minority voters in the primaries and didn't turn out young voters. So there's not a ton of enthusiasm. This feels like a historic candidate who has more of a Tim Kaine-like stroke in 2016. Well, yeah, I, 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 I see the I, I see what you mean when, when it comes to her moderation, her pragmatism, her ability to adapt, let's say, in terms of policy. She doesn't have so many hard lines. But I think the Tim Kaine comparison... Um, really, uh, I really think it sells her short. I mean, she is far more dynamic than Tim Kaine. Tim Kaine was the definition of a, a safe vice presidential pick and where safety just becomes too important. I, I, I don't, I don't want to, I, I think the New York Times put it well when they said she's the do no harm vice presidential candidate, but she also energizes um, Democrats. And, and I think that's true. I, I think that comes in her, the historic nature of her candidacy, being the first South Asian woman, she's Indian American, um, to occupy a spot on a major party presidential ticket. Um, of course, the first woman she would become if she were elected vice president, the first black woman um, and the first black vice president. These are significant factors to um, a Democratic base uh, that is diverse. But, you know, the thing about Kamala where I, I, I see the it's it, it sort of being... Maybe the opposite of a Tim Kaine is that I think she outshines the vice president on this ticket. I, I think she outshines the top of the ticket. And whereas in electoral conventional wisdom, if you will, you would be reluctant to have the running mate outshine the top of the ticket. In this case, I think the Biden campaign welcomes bringing a Kamala Harris in. She's going to levy attacks against the president with a lot more competency and a lot more clarity than Vice President Biden can. And I think the campaign, I think that's what the campaign was looking for. 
I think that's correct in the sense that you put her up against Mike Pence in a debate. She will do a great job. She will definitely outshine the, the current incumbent vice president. She does add a certain flair that the campaign lacked. But the way I get a Tim Kaine sense from this pick, and, and this is why I say it, I understand it's historic. I understand that people will be excited about the prospect of the first female vice president. She does not add any electoral appeal to Joe Biden that he didn't have previously. When you look at all the polling data, it would indicate that he was strongly ahead, had the upper hand in this race, and she does not bring a certain demographic, a certain group to the mix that will significantly increase his chances, especially as the polling starts to tighten just a little bit. So while I think she does outshine a little bit, she does add a certain flair, there isn't a voting block, a voting group, or by ancient standards, a state that you're probably going to lock up as a result of this pick. And I think that's where the pick may fall a little bit short. There isn't enough chops, enough proven success running campaigns against prominent Republicans that would prove that Kamala Harris puts Joe Biden over the top. I think this is an interesting point. And she comes from California, which is a state that is in the Democratic column. I mean, no matter who the Democrats nominated this cycle. But what's interesting is that she was vetted in the in the presidential primary process, and she did not have success in that race. Let's be very clear. She ran a floundering campaign. Um, and, and I think this well, you know, her her not appealing in in a primary campaign that was in 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 many ways the the currents of that primary were dominated by a Bernie Sanders and at one point Elizabeth Warren who had a big surge um leading up to Iowa didn't didn't last for her, but though though the conversations in that primary were very progressive and Kamala Harris just wasn't on that wavelength. Um and when she went further to the left, you could tell it was uncomfortable for her. And I just think that she didn't have currency in that race. Um, she could not find her footing in that race. You're absolutely right to say that there wasn't a certain demographic. There wasn't a a corner of the party ideologically that flocked to her. She just was sort of a um, – she was safe to the extent that she – didn't stick her neck out on many policies and couldn't really bring in any sector of the party. And I think that is sort of her appeal here. I mean, if we're really trying to get into the head of the vice president, that's Vice President Biden. I mean, it is the fact that she, yeah, maybe she doesn't have a lot of friends in the Democratic Party and that she doesn't have some loyal um, base that's fired up for her. But she also has no enemies in the Democratic Party. And, and I think that's part of the do no harm element of the pick and her historic nature um, is an element of the energizing factor. So she gives you both sides of that coin. I, I think, you know, if we talk about weaknesses, which is where I want to take this, um, that political weakness that she showed on policy, for instance, health care. Um, yeah, she's very firm um, when she talks about racial injustice and um, in the wake of numerous race-motivated racist murders in the United States um, this spring and summer. She was maybe the most prominent voice next to Senator Cory Booker, um, two of only three black United States senators on issues of race in this country. Um, and so there's no doubt that that is an asset 
for her politically. But when it comes to health care or the environment, Senator Harris is not totally fluent um, with these issues, doesn't appear totally comfortable um, with understanding what what policy needs to look like it, as a Democrat um, in the next four, eight, 12 years, however long she's a part of the White House. And Chris, I'm, you can tell me if I'm wrong, but this feels like more of an extension of the Obama-type legacy of the Democratic Party than anything else. It's not extending your hand to the left. We talk about not adding any appeal to the Biden campaign in terms of demographics, but maybe keeping some people home who are were upset that a bone wasn't thrown towards towards that side of the party. And this is a Barack Obama favorite. This is a, a neoliberal favorite of the fact that you're not going to go further and further left than you ever have before and be a completely progressive campaign. So, like you mentioned, great in many respects. And I think it's non-controversial enough where, yeah, you, you could get her elected very easily at this point and have her be the first female vice president and have her be the future of the party. But it does seem like an extension of the 2008 to 2016 level of the party more than it is the 2016 to 2020. I think that's a great point. And we, we sort of um, alluded to it at the beginning of the podcast, which is that this pick and, and, you know, both picks, the, the presidential and vice presidential nominee, um, indicate that the Democratic Party is doubling down on what was ultimately a moderate stroke in the last election. I think there are some key differences, and we'll launch into them, but both of these nominations, and they're presumptive at this point, they'll become official next week at the Democratic National Convention beginning next Monday. Um, but there's no doubt that if this ticket loses, that the left wing of the party and a lot of American, I would think the consensus, uh, the postmortem of this party will say, we made the same mistake twice. We nominated a an establishment Democrat in the grain, in the, you know, to, to sort of cement the legacy of Barack Obama, who there's no doubt is beloved in the party, continues to be the godfather, if you will, of democratic politics. You nominated a secretary of state, that was obvious. Then you nominated his vice president. You couldn't get more obvious than that. Are you not thinking outside the box enough, especially when you see that no one gets more excited, no one excites Democrats more, no one excites a larger number of Democrats more than a Bernie Sanders? Are you making the mistake by not listening to that wing of the party? And, you know, I, I think there are reasons why that's not the case. But one thing I know is true is that if this ticket loses— then the the criticism is going to be rightfully loud in that the party in both cases ignored that wing of the party. Yeah, Chris, it better win. This ticket better win for the sake of the party or else there is going to be massive turmoil as to what should have happened. And normally conventional wisdom would tell you you want to nominate someone who has a resurgent base, a energized group of supporters that will run through a wall to get to the polls on election day, and then add to that base as the election season moves on. What the Democratic Party was terrified of is that idea that a Bernie Sanders is too socialist left and would be painted as such, and then you get that base and you get nothing else. That's why they're doubling down on the moderate stance and hoping that there's more electoral appeal. It could backfire again, but as it stands right now, 
unless there is some crazy shape of Kamala Harris that scares Biden voters away and scares independents away. You mentioned it before. This is more of a safe, do-no-harm pick. It is a historic candidacy, so I don't want to undermine that clearly. But it is a safe, do-no-harm pick in the sense that the Biden campaign could go to the finish line relatively unharmed, maintain their seven, eight-point lead, and then wrap this thing up. Well, I, I think this brings us to the point of where the president will react to this pick. And what's different between the 2016 and 2020 tickets is that they were a, while both are moderate, while both were moderate um, points of mind um, and represented establishment democratic politics, um, Donald Trump in 2016 was able to paint Hillary Clinton as a so-called leftist, in air quotes, a, a, a real liberal, someone who represented the far left of the party when she really didn't. He's doing a horrible job of that right now, by the way. And you saw immediately upon the Kamala Harris pick uh, an ad that started by painting her as radical left without any proof, just painted her as radical left right off the bat. And that's what they've tried to do with Joe Biden so far to no effect. So it, the Trump campaign is struggling in that regard. Yeah, and, and so they're going to try to do the same thing. But if you were to compare the two tickets, and, and here's the, the point of comparison, is that um, for any number of reasons, and, and you can speculate them at home, whether that's sexism, um, the leftist label does not stick, stick to Joe Biden the way it stuck um, to Hillary Clinton. And... You know, th this election will test your theory, Emmanuel, that you need to you need to be able to have voters who will run through a wall for you because the Democratic Party clearly doesn't think that they do because they know they, they look at polling. They look at they look at the faces of people in crowds. They know that no one is running through a wall for Vice President Biden, and yet they've nominated him. So that will test that theory. Um, you know, I, I, I think it's a risk. It's a risk. And, you know, I, I, I think, you know. What does this say that the Trump campaign is going to potentially um, point its crosshairs at a Kamala Harris? I mean, maybe they're more comfortable attacking a woman the way that the, the clear target in their last campaign. They didn't. I, I don't believe Tim Kaine's name came out of the president's mouth. It was all about Hillary Clinton. He was non-existent. He was non-existent in that campaign. And clearly, a vice presidential running mate is much more critical to a far less um, competent campaigner in Joe Biden than was Hillary Clinton. So Kamala Harris, you know, and, and this gets back to the point of her outshining the top of the ticket, becomes a, a massive element in this race. And the weight, the gravity of this pick we knew and, and we anticipated last week. But after seeing a week of response, both from the president's camp, from media outlets, from the New York Times to Fox News, it's clear that everyone has their eye on Kamala Harris. And of course, it's a new pick, so that makes sense. But I think that's going to last until November, that she is going to be um, a, a, a massive, unprecedented vice presidential figure in this race. And the question will become, can the president pin some of the attacks that he's trying to use against Kamala Harris? When we just mentioned at the open that her record is solidly moderate. And right now, it seems like the campaign is struggling to come to terms with how they are going to attack and frame Kamala Harris. Because you initially saw that ad that was all over the place, started with radical left, started talking about 
going towards the Green New Deal. They seem to like to include Bernie in all these attacks, whether it be Biden or or Harris, when there's no firm proof that they're cozying up to the Bernie Sanders wing of the party. And then you already are hearing phrases like nasty out of the president's mouth. The birther theory has kind of come through the wings. You have a lawyer saying that somehow Kamala Harris is ineligible to be vice president of the United States and the president even floating that that could be a possibility. So the fact you're jumping that many bounds already without having a firm strategy on how you're going to paint a vice presidential candidate that is going to shape this race in one way or another. I think that's troubling news for the Trump campaign that they're already flustered in such a way that they're jumping towards conspiracy, which is really what happened yesterday when you heard the president of the United States say something like, you would have thought the Democratic Party would have vetted this candidate. Well, they have. And they're not going to run someone who was not born in this country. And she was born in Oakland. Um, <laughs> you know, it's as simple as that. It's a shame that we need to waste airtime on what is ultimately a racist attack. Um, and we'll see um, how racism and sexism play um, into the, you know, the, of the offensive against Kamala Harris. Certainly, um, the president doesn't see bounds um, to his political strategy and, and will do what it takes, you know, and whereas we talk about how this ticket maybe alienates a left wing of the party, and I, again, I'm not certain that that's true, but to some extent, it's not, it's not their, their, their happiest ticket. But, you know, whereas that might be true, what's different here is that moderate voters, specifically suburban voters, um, if you look at the data and if you look at how suburban, especially suburban women voted in 2018, um, it would indicate that you'll see a swing in that respect. Um, it, it just doesn't seem to be landing the president's attacks. And, and we've established in our, in our last episode that that's his, that, that's his political bread and butter is the attack. And he just doesn't have a firm attack um, that he's been able to square away against this ticket. And you know, again, I, I think, Emmanuel, we, we mentioned before we we got recording that as much as we say this and we set a state of the race that clearly shows advantage Biden, advantage Biden-Harris right now. You know, we're, we're very clear about that on the swing right now. But a lot changes in electoral politics. Events happen. Um, and uh, and currents change, especially when we're this far out from the election. We've been talking for a couple of weeks now about the the clear edge that Joe Biden has. It's been an eight to ten point lead for for several months now. It's been a steady lead, a commanding lead, unlike we've seen in a long time, because these leads normally fluctuate and they end up tightening. Over the last couple of weeks, you've seen a little bit of a shift towards President Trump. I think the average right now is around six and a half in terms of the national lead for for Joe Biden. The one catch here is Donald Trump was in this very same position in 2016 where he was down by about six points at this stage of the election. In fact, a recent 538 forecast had the same electoral vote breakdown and the same percentage chance of winning for Joe Biden that Hillary Clinton had at this very same time in 2016. That's not to say it is 2016. A lot has changed, but you consider the turmoil of this past year 
you consider the mishandling, or at least the electorate would believe, the mishandling of the coronavirus pandemic. You have the racial injustice that clearly played against President Trump's campaign. To have him within six points on average with 80 and change to go until Election Day does give him a, a, a firm outlet to be able to pull this off and win at the end of the day. So you'd much rather be the Biden campaign right now, but by no means do you rule out a President Trump victory because he was in this spot with far less against him four years ago. And if you look at polling, and, and, and that's what we want to rely on when we consider a Biden edge, that doesn't come from thin air. He's up nine nationally, if you look at an average of polls in 2020. But again, to look at past races, let's go back to 2008. The last four Democratic nominees, Barack Obama was up six at this point in 2008, his first campaign. In his reelect, he was up four at this point. Clinton was up three at this point. So, yeah, Clinton had had some leads, but she was up three nationally as of August 12th, 2016. August 12th, 2020, Biden's up nine. Um, so there is some daylight there. Um, you know, and, and I think beyond the polling, as we've been able to sort of look deeper here, it's just to find that the president doesn't appear to have the sort of ammunition that he was able to build up for a Hillary Clinton. I mean, you could see him floundering with how he was going to attack Kamala Harris. He was even looking down at a piece of paper. And that's something he never does when he's on the political attack. No. He knows what to say about his political opponents. It's one thing if he's at a NATO conference. I don't know if he attends those or something at the United Nations. He'll read. He needs to read a script. But when he's attacking political opponents, I mean, he usually... He doesn't need to look down at the podium for that. And very gifted on his feet. Uh, we'll give him that. <laughs> so it, normally he's able to fire off the attacks without any assistance. Those were clearly planted by someone who told him this is what you should say about Kamala Harris. And he really didn't appear to have a clear message or idea of what to do. And I think the numbers you just cited, Chris, demonstrate that a lot changes. And a lot is going to change in these next yes. 80 and change days until... Election Day. Barack Obama had a six-point lead around this time in 2008. Then there was a complete economic catastrophe that basically put the election away in his camp for the rest of the ride. You have 2012, which was a re-election campaign where the economy wasn't doing all that great, and Mitt Romney was within spitting distance. Hillary Clinton had a three-point lead, you mentioned, on average at this point, built it back up to seven or eight points, then you had the whole reopening of the FBI case into her emails that had already been determined prior that may have created a shadow of doubt among the electorate and validated some of the stuff that President Trump had continually said throughout that 2016 campaign. So a lot shifts. These leads go back and forth. You mentioned the formidable nature of the Biden campaign right now. I would agree due to the fact that there have not been fluctuations over the past two months. And if the lead stays eight to 10 points and it doesn't waver much until October, there's no reason to believe that it's going to shift into Trump's column, especially with all of the crisis that has been dealt with in this country over the last year. 
And again, looking into states, getting more focused, which of course is is the factor that matters in the Electoral College. We've talked a lot about Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, maybe Florida, but look at those three Midwestern states, Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania. Joe Biden has leads across all those states. But if he were to slip there, if 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 Donald Trump's able to get those states permanently in his column, those Midwestern manufacturing jobs um, and, and, and people um, of those backgrounds who voted for him, let's say they stay with him. Then Joe Biden has clearly some other options. Three polls that we'll give you today um, as we wrap here in North Carolina. It's 46-45. Biden, nine undecided in the average of the last three polls. Arizona, it's 47-44. Biden, Georgia, 46-45. Biden. So, Emmanuel, these states appear to be at least curious about Joe Biden. And again, we, we have a coronavirus pandemic Um we figure that race will, will play a heavy impact in the 2020 race. So these are all factors that we want to bring you on the podcast. We want to look at data, like we mentioned. We want to look at mail-in ballots. And, of course, we didn't even mention that the convention is coming up next week. So we think in our 70-day podcast we'll have, uh, we'll have some info for them on that. And, Chris, you talked about the polling in those key swing states. That is only an indicator of the Biden pathways to the presidency. That's the reason 538 has him at that 71% chance. Donald Trump won in 2016 by securing that Midwest blue wall that the Democrats had had for almost 30 years. And that was really his only pathway to get across the 270 threshold and to the finish line. Here in 2020, not only do the Democrats view it as more of an outlier that occurred in 2016 and states that can flip back into the Biden column, but you have those additional states that can be added to the mix, a North Carolina, a Florida, an Arizona, some more states that could potentially be a factor, but not as likely the Iowas, Ohios, and Georgias of the world. But it's very conceivable that Joe Biden could win a Florida or a North Carolina. That gets him across the finish line without even worrying about the Midwest states. And of course, almost all the attention is going to be paid to the Pennsylvanias, the Wisconsins, and the Michigans. And in all three states, Joe Biden is at or around 50% right now, which regardless of the lead, is a huge indicator that those states are leaning in his column. And a recent Republican-leaning poll had likely voters Biden up 12 in Wisconsin. So so these are clear indicators that that wall is returning to the Democratic Party. And even if it doesn't, North Carolina and Florida are very much in the mix. And that's why Joe Biden still has the upper hand, despite what his vice presidential pick is. And we'll have it all for you here on The Swing to break down the states, the voters, swings. Who's swinging in 2020? Is there going to be a swing vote? And what does that mean for the final result. And, uh, of course, in this episode, we we hope that we were able to give you a little clarity about Kamala Harris, who's the new factor in the race, and you'll certainly be hearing her name on the podcast as we move forward because we do believe that she is a big factor in this race. It's Biden, Harris, Trump, Pence, 2020 showdown. It comes down on November 3rd. We are 80 days away. And we thank you so much for being uh, along the ride with us. We'll see you next time on 70 Days Out. For Emmanuel Barbari, I'm Chris Baccia. Thanks for joining us.